0: Welcome to Mass Ave, bringing you conservative news, policy, and insight from the steps of Capitol Hill. I'm your host, Tommy Binion. Uh, It is great to be back on the podcast. It is great that Congress is, uh, well, the House is out of session this week. The Senate is finishing up the NDAA, and the president will be in New York this week. Uh, The U.N. General Assembly is meeting. He's giving a big speech tomorrow. Uh, to the General Assembly, we'll see if he makes any news on some of the topics that we've covered here on the podcast: North Korea, or the Iran nuclear deal, or uh, or climate change. Made the news over the weekend. Uh, at first, the Wall Street Journal was reporting that uh, we were we were back in the Paris Accord, but it turns out the White House made it clear that no, we're not going back into the the Paris Climate Accord. So maybe that will be part of the speech. Uh, Either way, uh, a lot of the experts uh, that have appeared here on the podcast will have something to say after that speech. So be sure to check out their work on Heritage.org. This is going to be an an interesting end of September. Obviously, uh, the Congress has has kicked the can. We we expected a much bigger agenda at the end of September, but we still have a lot to do. Children's Health Insurance Program uh, will be reauthorized before the end of the month. The Federal Aviation Administration will be reauthorized before the end of the month. And we could see Obamacare repeal. Uh, The Senate parliamentarian has said that the opportunity to repeal Obamacare Based on the 2017, the FY 17 reconciliation instructions uh, will expire at the end of the month. Now that's a preliminary ruling that may not stand. Uh, we, we could have another shot at this, but either way, uh, there is a bill getting some attention in the Senate this week. It's called Graham Cassidy. Senators Graham and Cassidy have sponsored this bill. Uh, it's a partial repeal of Obamacare. It includes some good reforms. It's it's not what uh, what we wanted. It's not what we would have written, but it yeah. Uh, there is some possibility that that bill gains steam in the Senate this week. Uh, CBO is said to be scoring it. Leadership in the Senate is said to be whipping it. These are these are signs that this bill could come could come up. So we will keep an eye on that. Got a couple of great interviews uh, for this podcast. Rachel Gresler, who testified in front of the Senate last week on. The President's uh, Reorganization Initiative is uh, going to be with us. And uh, John Michael Sabler, uh, who's a legal fellow here at the Heritage Foundation, is going to be talking with us about the 641 ways uh, that former uh, 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 drug offenders uh, are penalized and, and the impact that that has. Uh, talk about over-criminalization. Uh, that's a really interesting interview. We're excited to play it for you. Uh Although, first, we are going to do a brand new segment that we hinted at last week. It's called Ask the Expert. Uh, this is a debut for us. Uh, we took questions from you, the listeners, and we got them. Um, we got an expert's take on them. We'll continue to do this going forward. If you have questions for heritage experts, we will relay them and we'll play a good one on the air each week. Today, we discuss the opioid crisis with heritage legal fellow Paul Larkin. Let's go ahead and play that.
1: Unless it is a baby born to a crack mother or a young child that is drugged by an adult, I don't believe anyone today is oblivious to what drugs will lead to, slavery and drugs. So my question is this. Why do taxpayers get the bill for Narcan and other antidotes to overdose? I believe in spending whatever to teach children the dangers of addiction, but I do not think we should bail addicts out. They should know in advance they will be on their own if they want to risk being enslaved to drugs. How does Heritage feel about this? If we wish to make America strong and healthy, we need to deal with our drug problem.
2: I understand the concern by the person who submitted that question. The concern principally comes from a moral perspective. The questioner believes that a moral obligation imposed on everyone in society is to comply with the law, that the controlled substances laws are particularly important statutes for people to comply with, and that noncompliance must be punished, both because noncompliance inherently is wrong and therefore should be punished, and perhaps because noncompliance, if it goes unpunished, will not deter other people from committing the same sorts of offenses. That's a generally reasonable position. But I do want to mention two points with respect to the moral perspective shown in that sort of question. One, for lack of a uh, better term, is essentially that there are times when we should hopefully rely on the better angels of our nature in order to help someone in distress. Consider the story of the Good Samaritan. It may well be that the person who was in need of help had done many other things wrong in his life, but the Good Samaritan helped him out, and that action earned him, even though he is anonymous, credit throughout the the 2,000 years of history that have followed. Secondly, if addiction is in fact a disease that does take away from the moral affront that the use of narcotics causes to society. Now, whether addiction is a disease is itself a controversial issue. It's debated even within the medical profession. And even within the profession of people who focus on the treatment of people who are addicted to different substances or who abuse substances. And if in fact, addiction is a disease, then the failure to treat that person with Narcan would amount to acting in an immoral way because we don't refuse to put tourniquets on people who otherwise are bleeding out. So, Even if you look at this issue from an entirely moral or deontological perspective, there is another side to the story. Plus, if you look at this issue not from a deontological perspective, but from a utilitarian perspective, you also could come out on the other side. There is a presumption that society follows in that it wants its first responders to save lives. Why? Society believes that the benefits of doing so outweigh the costs. Keep in mind, when a first respondent sees someone who has overdosed from drugs, the first responder is not going to know that person's life story. It may well be that this person has gotten off the path and onto an addiction uh, for reasons that possibly were beyond his or her control. For example, maybe this was a person who became addicted after the use of opiates after surgery. Or even if the person voluntarily went down this path knowing full well what the risk might be, it may be the person has a family, a wife or children or others who would be hurt far more by his death than the benefits society would obtain, if you will, from morally teaching society that people who overdose should suffer whatever fate befalls them. Now, we also don't want first responders to try to find out the life story of an individual. When an EMT shows up at a site and sees that someone has overdosed, that person doesn't have the life history of the individual involved and can't find it out. So the presumption that we should try to save lives should kick in in that regard. So there are utilitarian as well as moral reasons for not only allowing but requiring first responders to administer Narcan to someone who has overdosed.
0: Okay. See, that was a really interesting perspective from Paul Larkin, who's making the point there that uh, Uh, Of course, our first responders will be administering Narcan for overdoses that have resulted as as part of an opioid addiction. Certainly, uh, opioid addiction is something that plagues our society. It's something that is... Uh, getting worse not better and some of these questions are arising as a result of that uh, but Paul does a great job there uh, uh, explaining that uh, and also does a great job here at the Heritage Foundation he covers uh, so many issues as a legal fellow down on the Meese Center uh, but he is he's one of the best uh, please check his work out at heritage.org. org um, well let's let, let's move now to our interviews um, uh Rachel Gressler is a senior policy analyst in economics and entitlements in the Center for Data Analysis at the Heritage Foundation. So CDA is a really cool thing we have going on here at Heritage. Uh, down there they they score meaning they 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 tabulate the cost uh, and impacts of a government program. Um, She's down there working on Social Security, Social Security disability insurance, taxes, uh, entitlements. Um, She's a really brilliant person, as evidenced by the fact that she's got one master's degree in public policy from Georgetown University and another master's degree in economics from Georgetown University. Um, before joining us here at the Heritage Foundation in 2013, uh, Rachel was a senior econo- a senior economist at the Joint Economic Committee, which is a committee over there on Capitol Hill uh, that, that, com- that is comprised of both House members and senators. Great to have Rachel on the show. Rachel Gresler, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Mass Ave. It's great to have you here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You are doing uh, some really interesting work on government reorganization, which is a project going on within the Trump administration. Maybe not something that that has gotten national headlines, but certainly something that is going to have significant change. Uh, Let's start broadly with what's going on. What is the Trump administration trying to do here?
1: Well, they're trying to do big things. Back in March, the president issued an executive order to reorganize the federal government. Now, that means a lot of stuff. That means getting rid of inefficiencies, duplication, waste. It means looking at the government comprehensively and saying, is this something that the Constitution says the federal government should be in the job of doing, or would it be better to leave this to state and local governments and the private sector? And it also means looking at the costs of things. There may be things that the government has a role in, but the cost might not be justified by the benefits, and also what would it cost to change it. Some things are more expensive. You know, there's a lot of modernization and stuff that could be done, but they take upfront costs, and so taking that into consideration. So the president issued this order. He's tasked the Office of Management and Budget, which Director Mulvaney oversees, to look at this across the agencies. The agencies have submitted plans to OMB. We don't know what's in those plans yet, but they're working with OMB and finding ways that they think that they can reduce inefficiencies, maybe eliminate whole offices and departments.
0: That'd be great. <laughs>
1: um, and that's what we've at heritage. What we have recommended, we put together a blueprint for reorganization, um, pulling from a lot of the policies and things we've recommended over the years, and most recently, in other blueprint documents. And so we have this comprehensive list here: 110 specific recommendations. A lot of them are eliminations. A lot of them are merging um, one office with another where we have redundancy. A lot of it is getting the federal government out of things like police and fire protection that local communities are better tasked with. So we have this comprehensive list here. We submitted that to OMB as they had asked for recommendations from outside organizations and individuals. Um, And we're trying to move the ball forward and just keep some attention on this matter.
0: Yeah, the, the government grows uh, every second just about. If you live and work in Washington, D.C., or, or you've come here for a visit, you can see our, our federal government buildings are huge. Mm-hmm. And uh, every time I walk by one of them, I wonder what the bureaucrats inside are, are working on. Uh, it's certainly something that has outgrown its constitutional footprint. We're, we're largely talking about executive agencies here, aren't we? But, uh, things that are maybe authorized and paid for by Congress, but they're part of the executive branch. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's up to the executive executive branch to to reform and reorganize these tell us uh, 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 you mentioned that the, the process as we see it unfolding mm-hmm. uh, and as the executive order requires but tell us ab- about how this how all this uh, works in terms of whose responsibility is it to get this right and and ultimately uh, if the Trump administration is able to pull this off uh, what the path for that is
1: and mm-hmm. um, Well, the responsibility right now is with the president because he's the one that has issued this executive order. He said, I want to take this on. Congress could have done the same thing. And in many respects, Congress has a lot more control because we are talking about agencies and departments that Congress has in almost every case authorized. And by the way, we're up to 440 agencies and sub-agencies listed in the Federal Register. I think most people probably think, oh, maybe there's a couple dozen of them. No, there's 440.
0: I want Um, my money back. (laughs) I say that often on the podcast. If there are 440 <laughs> government agencies, I want my tax dollars back. Go ahead.
1: Exactly. Um, so the pathway going forward from here. You know, in the past up through, you know, 1932 to 1984, presidents had significant what was called Presidential Reorganization Authority. They could propose plans to reorganize parts of the government. Usually it was one part, and then they'd submit a bunch of different plans because it had to be a specific um, package, but these were widely used. Um, 73% of the plans that were submitted were enacted. Well, that was in part because it was kind of a de facto enactment. If Congress didn't vote it down, then it became law. Well, starting in '84. The president essentially lost that authority, um, and that hasn't been reenacted since then. I don't see it. Being something that Congress is going to be willing to grant President Trump now. In the past, we've had presidents as recently as President Obama asked Republicans in Congress for this authority. And even though he proposed things that they would have liked to see, you know, getting rid of the Department of Commerce, um, merging some redundant agencies, they didn't give him that authority. So I don't think there's a big chance that the president's going to have it here. So he's going to need Congress's help um, Congress could approach this by committee. They could take up legislation within their jurisdiction. I don't see the pathway there being very hopeful either, because when you get into the committee structure, everybody wants to protect their own turf. And so they want to get rid of waste and abuse. And there's even some bipartisan support for doing some good things to increase efficiency, but not on my turf. And so when it has to go through that committee, it's unlikely to get passed. You know, Republicans, when they took over Congress, um, in the 90s, they spent a ton of time going through 11 different um, committees to get rid of the Department of Commerce, and then it got tied up by one Republican senator. So,
0: 11 different committees said 11 yes, committees. and one senator blocked it.
1: Exactly. Who so it shows you is... how easy it is to block things instead of pass them.
0: Who out there is surprised that Congress is part of the problem? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I, I'm for smaller government. I'm 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 for government efficiency. I'm, I'm for saving a buck or two. But uh, more than anything, I am I am for uh, shrinking the government and and stopping its excess and stopping its impact on all of our lives. Uh, the bigger the government is, the the more liberty it sucks away from from the people. Um, Talk to us a little bit about about the scope of this. Are we going for, uh, as you pointed out, wholesale eliminations of offices or Mm -hmm. agencies? Or are we going for reassigning bureaucrat B to bureaucrat C's old desk?
1: The president, I think, is going for the whole thing. Let's really look down and what should the government be doing and not doing and big cuts here. But that's not possible under his current authority. And so the pathway that we go forward dictates whether or not we just see a few little things like, oh, let's get rid of a couple layers of management here. We have too much bureaucracy in offices or small scale things. Let's modernize this one component of the Social Security office. Those are some little things that you might see bipartisan support for and be able to pass But that's, you know, that's chump change in the big scheme of things here. And so if we're really talking about getting the government to be the right size and an efficient government, you need a different pathway. I think the best pathway for that that we can look at in the past is a BRAC-type commission. So you have an independent commission. Congress creates it. They can – determine who's on that commission, but these aren't going to be politicians. These are going to be people with in-depth experience in the government that know what needs to be done. That commission comes up with a comprehensive plan addressing all these things. Some are small, some are big. You know, in the Clinton administration, they came up with over 1,200 different proposals. So this is going to be a ton of things that need to be done, but it would all be part of one package. And then you can submit that to the president. The president has an up or down. And if the president approves it, unless Congress votes to disapprove prove it, then that plan goes into action. I think there's a lot more area for getting bipartisan support for something that is just a comprehensive, we're going to do everything that needs to be done. And even if there are parts of it that I don't like, I see, you know, I can vote for this or I can be in favor of it because it's making the government work better for the people.
0: Well, on Mass Ave, we're really proud of the work that our heritage researchers are are doing. This is a, a project that has had particularly high impact uh, the the president is listening. OMB is listening, but but Congress is listening too. They invited you to testify in front of the uh, the Senate um, Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee last week. How'd that mm-hmm. go?
1: It went well, mean um, I found it very encouraging. You know, a lot of the panelists up there had similar recommendations and were in agreement. Um, there was one union representative from the government who had a little bit different views, but also could see eye to eye on some things, definitely, you know, eliminating all these layers of management and excess paperwork in um, both sides of the aisle had some area for agreement there. But I do think that where it comes to head is when you start talking about these wholesale eliminations and what is the proper role of the government. And the other big issue is just the personnel reforms. You could do everything you need to, get the government the right size, um, only be doing the things that it should be doing in the most efficient and modern way possible. But if you have the current federal civil service system, you're not going to be operating efficiently. You're not going to be you know, using the taxpayer's dollar in the appropriate way because as it is now, we're massively overpaying our federal employees, mostly on the lower end, and then in the upper end, we're not... You know, even compensating them fairly, so it's this skewed structure, and then you have problems like it takes them a year and a half to fire a federal employee, so no manager even bothers to try. You know, they receive two automatic pay increases. One of them's allegedly performance based, but if you don't want to give that performance based pay increase, you have to spend months implementing this plan for the employee to. Per- improve it's just a mess and we have all the wrong incentives in there and it's not just bad for taxpayers it's bad for those public employees they get a bad rap and they're the ones that are sitting there having to deal with other poor for poor employees and having to take on their jobs and do twice the work.
0: it, it, it is a mess it, it is a mess that that we've heard too much about that we're frustrated with uh, but we've got some progress in front of us uh that, that could happen mm-hmm. uh this year and next thanks to this executive order and and the things that have happened uh since then and and, and your work and the work of the heritage foundation so uh we're really excited about the possibility mm-hmm. that the government could be changing here and, and, and this is uh this is an, an, an overlooked but but highly impactful uh issue area here thanks Rachel really appreciate you coming on the podcast yep thanks for having me John Michael Sabler is a legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies uh, within the Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation. Uh the Institute for Constitutional Government is a newer institute here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh it, it is comprised of our Legal Center, our Center for Principles and Politics, uh and uh together those two uh, those two groups look at um the legal underpinnings of our society including all of the laws that are that 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 stack as high as the building um as as part of our legal system today but also going all the way back to the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Happy to have John Michael here on the show. John Michael, welcome into the pod. It's great to have you here on Mass Ave. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the piece you published last week on the Daily Signal. Uh, we're going to get into some of this over stuff and, uh, and, and talk about the consequences for drug users, but, but uh, or for uh, those who are convicted of drug crimes. Uh, talk to me about your, your article first.
3: Sure. So in the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act of 2016, Congress asked the Government Accountability Office to take a look at a scheme of federal laws and regulations that are called collateral consequences. These are civil laws and regulations that, unlike the federal drug laws, are existing in the civil justice system and restrict ex-offenders' civil liberties and freedoms and entitlements once their punishment is officially over. So there are 641 of these penalties, is that right? That's right. So the GAO found 641, which many people would look at and say, gosh, that's an awful lot. But they actually apply across the entire host of federal laws. So they cover things like housing rights, financial assistance, uh, food sustenance programs, and many of them hit things like employment that can really wind up putting a damper on ex-offenders' ability to come out Reintegrate into society and become lawful, productive citizens.
0: So, so that that brings up a good question, right? We we have federal laws in place for a good reason, uh, and we have punishments that hopefully meet the crime. Uh, what is the goal? of our judicial system, of our criminal justice system, as far as the individuals convicted of a crime? What is the goal? Is it to punish them? Is it to rehabilitate them? What is a good conservative way of thinking about the goal of our criminal justice system?
3: Yeah, great question. Really, it's all of the above. You want swift and certain punishment for offenders who trigger the federal criminal drug laws, but you also want them to come out of prison, and we hope and expect them to lead law-abiding and productive lives and come out and contribute to their community, But when you look at a host of rules and regulations like the 641 that the GAO found for nonviolent drug offenders, you begin to ask, do these encourage reintegration or do they in some cases perhaps end up frustrating reentry to society and maybe even contribute to a return to crime?
0: Right. Recidivism is a is a big issue in our criminal justice system. We want to reduce recidivism as much as possible. Um, Is there any evidence that any of these specific penalties increase the likelihood of recidivism? Sure.
3: So in general, there are roughly 76.9 percent of drug offenders who, according to the National Institute of Justice, will re-enter the criminal justice system. Now that's just not cost-effective crime fighting. Uh, And you can look at the 641 rules and regulations that the GAO found, and you see some where you begin to wonder, is this specific collateral consequence going to be rationally related to an ex-offender's crime? So it fulfills the public safety purposes of these rules. And you can find ones like Federal statute 23 U.S.C. 159, which will actually withdraw certain federal funds from states that fail to revoke or suspend an ex-offender's driver's license if they're convicted of a drug offense. Now, that probably makes sense across a host of crimes. But you can ask, if an offender never used their car to violate a drug crime, and if no part of their criminal activity involved driving from A to B, should we be restricting their ability to to come out of prison and drive to a job interview, to a job, uh, to families and friends' houses, to reestablish and it's with the community, or to perhaps do things like drive their children to school. Simple daily activities that many of us might take for granted.
0: Now, there's a flip side to this coin as well. Uh, we're in the middle of an opioid crisis in this country that has touched nearly every single one of us. Um, and, and we are facing uh, a, a drug problem that needs a swift uh, criminal uh, justice response. There's certainly an element of this driven by uh, criminality uh, uh, amongst drug dealers and uh, organized crime even. Uh, so you know part of the criminal justice system is to act as a deterrent. Uh, with that in mind, uh, what is a right-sized policy
3: look like? What does one look like that strikes the right balance? Well, it's really hard to tell. You want these collateral consequences to help that effort. You want them to be deterring crime, to be keeping people, once they're out of prison, away from the circumstances that might lead to another offense. So for example, you want to keep child predators away from children, and you want to keep fraudsters off of Wall Street, and you want to keep drug offenders out of drug networks and drug markets. But another part of that, and it can seem counterintuitive at first glance, is you don't want to pile on so many that re-entry becomes something that is either actually or perceived to be now out of limits for them. Now, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein came here to Heritage last week and gave excellent remarks on the extent of the opioid drug problem, and really the drug problem in this country in general, on the power of prosecutorial discretion to shut down those markets and arrest those offenders. Um, And the concern with cloud consequences that the GAO report emphasizes is that you want these, again, to fulfill a public safety purpose, but also to foster reentry, to ensure that we are doing what we can to reduce that 76.9% number of drug offenders who end up reentering the criminal justice system.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know, 641 is, is a big number, but there are some eye-popping statistics when we start talking about over-criminalization uh, in, in this country. Last year, there was a uh, – last year and, and last Congress, really, the last two and a half years, there was a uh, a push to enact some uh, pretty strong criminal justice reform uh, in this country, Um it it never it never happened. We didn't get a new criminal justice law. Do you see that coming back anytime soon? Uh, you mentioned there was the a 2016 bill that precipitated this GAO report. Uh, what what is the prospect for um, legislation on criminal justice reform?
3: Well, I think that there is an appetite remaining in both chambers on the Hill. You have congressmen who genuinely recognize the problem of. Starting off in this nation with 30 or so federal crimes, and today you have 4,500 federal criminal statutes and over 300,000 regulations whose violations are also potentially a federal crime. And you can look at the United States Constitution talking about the power of Congress to define piracies on the high seas and to punish treason and counterfeiting. And you compare that to the criminal code that we have today, which talks about misusing the slogan, give a hoot, don't pollute or misusing the Burrus You can logo. misuse that? You can misuse it, and it's a federal and, crime. And go so to jail should, for it. Right, so look into that. Um, there are just all kinds of gimcracks like that scattered throughout the code, and they used to be all in Title 18, incidentally, which is where all the crimes and criminal procedures should be uh, enacted, and these are scattered all the way throughout the code and throughout the federal register where really people have, uh, first of all, no inclination to look for crimes, but also be very hard to find them even if they wanted to.
0: Well, John Michael, it's been great having you on the pod. Our listeners can find this article we've been talking about on the Um It's called... Do we need 641 penalties for non violent drug crime after punishment? So
3: we appreciate you. Uh, any any last thoughts? No, that's it. It's there. And uh, all the overcrime work is at heritage.org, of course.
0: Okay. And uh, word to the wise to all you listeners out there be careful with the phrase give a hoot, don't pollute. <laughs> Apparently, there are some pretty serious consequences for that. Thanks, John Michael. Appreciate you being here. Thank you. All right, with our gratitude to Rachel and John Michael, uh, it's time for us to wrap up wrap up today's episode of Mass Ave. Check us out on iTunes. Hit subscribe. That'll let you know uh, that we have a new episode out. Uh, it's great to have you listening to us, but please check us out on Heritage.org. Check us out on Facebook. Check us out on Twitter. All of those social media accounts are, uh, are, are really uh, full of information, and it'll let you know what we have going on. Uh, We're happy to have you as part of our listener network, but we want to see you there as well. Uh, That's it for this week. We'll see you next week.